0: In 1958, Mexican-American rock and roll pioneer Richie Valens unleashed La Bamba on the world. Chances are you've heard it. But what you might not know is that La Bamba comes from a style of Mexican music with deep African roots. Shkodine with you on Pop Worldwide from PRX. On today's program, we trace the musical legacy of Africa in Mexico.
1: When I hear Afro-Mexican, I usually think of the very fundamental ethnicity in the component of Mexican culture that has been erased from cultural memory.
0: As ethnomusicologist Alejandro Madrid suggests, the African contribution to Mexico has been little discussed over the years, but it turns out that Mexico has a rich black history. In this hip-deep edition, we take a road trip across Mexico to explore that history through sound and via conversations with musicians, scholars, journalists, and ordinary Mexicans. Up ahead, we learn how Son Jarocho music became cool again after being rescued from near extinction. Then we visit Afro-Mexican communities in the Costa Chica region fighting for cultural recognition. And we'll stop by the Golden Age dance halls of Mexico City and hear how the Afro-Cuban dance song became the sound of the nation. All that and more ahead on La Bamba, the Afro-Mexican story. To start us off, here's a song by Harana Beat, a US-based group that draws on Afro-Mexican sounds. This is Inadamas.
2: tengo orejas pa' sentir lo que hay afuera tengo boca y voz de fiera pa' gritar lleno a las guerras y nada, más. Y, nada más. y nada más 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 lo que pasa es que el brillo de la palabra poder lo que pasa es que el brillo de la palabra quiere poseer y terminan confundiendo una nota
0: por la beina nada más y nada más y nada más y nada más That was Mas by Haranabit. I'm Josh Coline with La Bamba, the Afro-Mexican story on Afro Pop Worldwide. Major support for Afro-Pop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the New York Council for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Okay, so when you tell people you're doing a radio show on Afro-Mexican music, a common response to get, even in Mexico, is, there's no such thing as Afro-Mexican music. There are no black people in Mexico. Well, wrong which is why we're going to start today with a little history lesson. Allow me to introduce our first guest. My name is Ben Vinson. Ben is professor at Johns Hopkins University and author of several books about Afro-Mexican history. The history is not an exclusive story of slavery. As the Spaniards
3: arrived, they brought with them African auxiliaries who came in some cases as slaves,
0: in some cases as workers and field hands and conquerors, quite frankly. As the conquest went on, much of Mexico's indigenous population began to die off from disease and to feel the labor shortage, enslaved Africans were brought in large numbers. Then, starting around 1640, the importation of slaves fell off sharply. Blacks in Mexico began to blend in with European and indigenous populations of the country, more so than anywhere else in Latin America. By 1810 or so, 10%
3: of the population of Mexico is peoples of African descent, 10%. That is roughly analogous to the population here in the United States at that particular moment in
0: time. One place where blacks thrived in colonial Mexico was military service. In the 18th century, Afro-Mexicans often dominated local militias. As a result, some of Mexico's great military heroes were of African descent. Example, Jose Morelos. Really a major guerrilla fighter that helped liberate Mexico
3: with the assistance of other peoples of African descent. According to rumor, he wore a uh, what we might call a stocking cap, really a handkerchief over his head to hide his curly locks so that people wouldn't see him as someone of African descent.
0: Even more renowned, Vicente
3: Guerrero. Vicente Guerrero, of course, was one of the presidents of Mexico. Barack Obama, 1829, if you will. uh, And in fact, was responsible for abolishing
0: slavery. These are the kind of people who have entire Mexican states named after them. We're talking major figures in the national consciousness. Yet, their African heritage was never celebrated. And here is why. But what happens is that
3: beginning in 1820s, when Mexico liberates itself from Spain, There's a new dialogue
0: that starts to arise around citizenry. Cultural theorists of the time come up with the idea of Mexico's raza Cosmica, a powerful cosmic race that emerges out of the mix of European and indigenous bloodlines. The moment had passed to really integrate uh, Afro-Mexicans into the national image. Native populations were embraced and and extolled in the, the sensibility of the nation. At the same time, other African descended peoples from places like Cuba, the US and Jamaica begin to settle in Mexico. What happens
3: is that as these new blacks come in from other parts of the world, they create a convenient mechanism for Mexican politicians, etc., to say that we don't have blacks here, these are foreigners, so it's an out. For, uh, for Mexican politicians that they used because quite frankly in the 19th century it wasn't great to depict your country as
0: having peoples of African descent. Yet African descent was and still is there in Mexico. You just need to know where to look. If you look at uh, the surnames of certain individuals
3: sometimes you'll see someone named Juan Pardo or uh, Julia Moreno uh, re- literally meaning Julia Black Juan Brown Those are clues to possible
0: Afro-Mexican links that go back for generations. Beyond these ancestral links, there are certain regions of the country where black heritage is more visible. One is Veracruz State on the Caribbean coast. Another is the Costa Chica of Guerrero on the Pacific side. Recently, there's been a new wave of interest in exploring all of this heritage in Mexico.
3: Beginning in the 1980s, something came about known as the Mexican Third Root Movement. It was a kind of government-sponsored initiative uh, that sought to look at all of Mexico's heritage by but specifically looking at its third root or its black root. And uh, this has led to an efflorescence, if you will, of kind of cultural uh, re-engagement. Dance groups, theater groups, radio shows, Afro Mexican hip hop, lots of other things that are taking place.
0: Which brings us to our main topic today music. There are several types of music associated with Afro Mexicans, but the most well known is Son Jarocho. Here's a song from one of the greats Afro Mexican harpist and singer La Negra Graciana. from La Negra Graciana. To research this program, our producer Marlon Bishop crisscrossed Mexico by car, meeting with musicians and local experts. His first stop was in southern Veracruz, a small town called Chinameca. Chinameca is much like any other small town in Mexico. Cinder-black
4: homes painted in bright hues, the aroma of marinated pork hanging in the air. I'm here for the town's Fiesta Patronal, or annual Saint's Day party. Every town in Mexico has one. It's not unlike a country fair in the U.S. There are carnival games and a Ferris wheel, and even one of those swinging boat rides. But there's also something else. Off to one side of town, there's a stage set up, with bands playing Son Jarocho, the folk music of Veracruz. People clap politely after each group, but the stage show isn't why people are here, not really. They're here for the Fandango. Four guys haul out a small wooden platform and plop it down in the middle of the street. A couple of people approach the platform and begin to strum haranas, a kind of stringed instrument similar to a guitar. are maybe 50 musicians, all playing at once. Finally, a couple gets up on the platform and begins to dance, stomping rhythmically. And just like that, the music gets a drum beat. The dancers keep their upper bodies rigid as their feet fly. They never touch, yet there's a certain sexiness to the dance as they flirtatiously circle each other eyes locked. After a few minutes, they leave the stage, and another couple replaces them. The fandango is the combination of a jam session and a dance party, and it's where Son Jarocho really lives, not in concert halls or three-minute recordings. Take it from Eliel Torres, a member of legendary Jarocho group Mono Blanco.
5: The cool thing about the fandango is that one song can last between one minute and a whole day. I once was at a festival where I played El Siquisiri from three in the morning until noon the next day.
4: This can happen because in
5: Son Jarocho,
4: songs don't really have set lyrics. The musicians take turns singing versos, little stanzas of poetry. Meanwhile, others take solos on their instruments. Like in jazz, a song isn't a strict roadmap. It's more like a suggestion, a framework for the music to grow out of. There's one key thing about this fandango that I haven't told you about yet. Almost everyone here is in their teens and early 20s. Jose Luis Hernandez
6: is
7: 18.
6: Here in Veracruz State, Son Jarocho is in style for young people. Kids seek out Son Jarocho because it's like, my friend is playing jarana and I want to play jarana too. I ask Viviriana Facundo, another young party-goer,
4: why she likes Son Jarocho. Her answer, la convivencia, a great Spanish word that means basically the way we live together. She says the Son Jarocho scene is like a family.
2: Because it's not something
6: you do yourself. You get together with others and mix and meet new people that you get along with and who have similar tastes as you.
4: These are, mind you, hyper-connected 21st century kids. They hang out on Facebook all day and have Lady Gaga ringtones on their phones. But at the same time, Veracruz has become this alternate universe where young people, a lot of them at least, have become really passionate about their traditional culture. How did this happen? Well, it's a long story. Here to help us out is Alejandro Madrid.
1: I'm an associate professor of Latin American and Latino Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago.
4: Okay, time for a little Son jarocho 101.
1: The Son Harocho is part of a larger complex of music in Mexico, the complex of Son music. Son draws from Spanish poetic forms
4: and is played on different string instruments with roots in medieval Spain. But in Veracruz, there was another element. During the colonial era, the city of Veracruz was the port of entry for everything coming into Mexico, including the slave trade. As a result, the region has historically been home to a large number of people of African ancestry.
1: So Son Jarocho is, in a way, the sound of the racial and cultural mixing that was taking place in Veracruz. The incorporation of the wooden dance floor where people do the zapateado. People tend to believe that comes from the African traditions.
4: Jarocho, by the way, is a nickname for people and things from Veracruz. It started out as an insult.
1: But I think what most people mean when they use the word Jarocho today is they mean sort of irreverent, and they claim that this is sort of one of the characteristics of the people of Veracruz. They don't take themselves very seriously.
4: Son Jarocho developed in Veracruz over the centuries, but it didn't really leave until the 20s, when the Mexican government started sending anthropologists to go around Mexico and document the country's folklore. State by state. The first well-known Jarocho recording artist was Andres Huesca, who was basically like the 1930s Jimi Hendrix of the Jarocho full carp. Just listen to him shred this thing. Bamba by Andres Huesca and his trio Urucana. Huesca achieved a little bit of fame for Son Jarocho in Mexico City as early as the 30s, but the music really blew up during the presidential campaign of 1946.
1: One of the candidates for the Mexican presidency happened to be from Veracruz, and uh, there was all this push of culture from Veracruz, and among this culture was Son Jarocho, which is said to be the favorite music of this candidate.
4: The candidate's name was Miguel
1: Alemán, and he won. So during his period as president in the 1950s, Son Jarocho sort of became popular again because of political reasons, basically.
4: During these years, artists like Andrés Huesca became big film stars, and one Son Jarocho song in particular became omnipresent. — La Bamba is one of the most traditional Son Harucho songs, said to date back to the 17th century. Whoever originally wrote it, it was a 17-year-old Mexican-American kid from Los Angeles who immortalized it. Richard Valenzuela, better known as Richie Valens, was a rock and roll teen sensation of Chicano heritage. In 1958, Valens signed a recording contract with Del Rey Records and put out a few singles that vaulted him to superstardom before dying tragically in a plane crash less than a year later. One of the first singles was a cover of La Bamba. It taught teens around the world to sing along. No soy marinero, soy capitán, soy capitán. After the La Bamba craze passed, Jarocho died down again. But towards the end of the 70s, there was another revival.
1: In the 1970s, there was this movement of music throughout Latin America that emphasized local folk traditions. They were musicians like Victor Jara
4: in Chile, or Carlos Puebla in Cuba, young, politically left, and searching for musical identities in indigenous and Afro-Latino traditions. And this part of the story brings us back to why all those kids in Chinameca were proudly strumming their (laughs) haranas. Just a short drive from there in Haltipan is a lime green compound called the Center for Son Jarocho Documentation. On Thursday evenings, its courtyard fills with children who come for the weekly harana workshop. For 15 years, the class has been taught by Benito Cortez, who believes teaching Son Jarocho is about more than strumming patterns. Son
7: Jarocho, in the end,
1: is
6: more than a genre of music. It's a whole complex of cultural codes that you use not just to have fun, but for communication. And this is really important.
7: Benito is a member of Los
4: Cogelites, one of the country's top son jarocho groups. Here at the center, the band all lives together, cooks together, and of course, plays music together. <laughs> the center were started by a guy named
7: Ricardo Perry.
2: 30, 35
7: years ago, Son Jarocho was in a bad state. — Ricardo grew up in Jaltipan, but had left to
4: pursue an academic career in literature. During the Mexican economic crisis of 1994, he returned home to check on his parents, and saw what he felt was a cultural crisis in his hometown.
7: Traditionally, the son was passed down from generation to generation, from father to son. But this system broke due to the process of industrialization. Another society came to impose their way of life on us, and it began to extinguish the son jarocho.
2: Watered
4: down versions of son jarocho could be found serenading tables in tourist towns. But the real stuff, the community fandangos, were fading. And so, Ricardo started working with like-minded artists to set up Jarocho workshops.
2: And
4: this began to bring back Son Jarocho. Since then, things have really turned around. And it's not just because of Los Cogelites. They are one of several bands that are taking part in this revival, alongside older groups like Son de Madera and Mono Blanco. Together, they've created a new model for a band, one that goes beyond performing and recording. They see themselves more as cultural workers, researching, documenting, and most importantly, teaching the music. (laughs) After the workshop, Ricardo and Los Cogelites close up the center for the night. It's hard work to keep the place going. They don't charge a single peso for the classes, and the government offers zero support. The place basically runs on their shared passion to help revive the culture. I had to ask Ricardo, why? Why really is it so important for people to maintain their
2: traditions?
7: This is what gives us our identity. It gives us the desire to be who we are and to defend who we are. Our foods, our ways of being, our language. All this makes us into somebody.
4: This is what Son Harotra teaches, that where you're from is more than just a place. It's everything you are, and it's worth fighting for.
0: That was Los Cojolites with El Palomo. The Son Jarocho revival isn't just in Veracruz. Some of the biggest and boldest fandangos are happening in the U.S. From Texas to Chicago, a new generation of Chicano youth are flocking to the genre. But there's a twist with the U.S. Jarocho groups. They're often closely tied to political activism, and one such band is Las Cafeteras. Band member Daniel French told us the story of how a group of young L.A. activists found their musical calling.
6: A lot of us met at a community garden called the South Central Farm. It was the largest urban garden in the U.S., and hundreds of families were eating organic food that they were growing themselves in like really poor South L.A. neighborhood. We learned song harocha music at our community center called the Isai Cafe, so... We turned from like a Song student group playing more and more over time turned into a band. Canonized Song bands came through and gave us workshops, you know, Los Cojolites. And they would sit there with us maybe for like two hours and just be like, you don't have the strum right, just just keep doing it, you know? Yeah, so um, in California, there's a big, you know, Son Jarocho movement. They call it the Movimiento Jaranero or Jaranero movement. Son Jarocho is very accessible. Once you have a jarana, it's very easy to sort of get in the mix because of the fandango. The fandango allows for people to not have to be experts to participate. It allows for people to kind of absorb what's going on and just jump in. If you know a couple chords, you can kind of like mm, fumble through it. Also, son jarocho is very improvisational, so like it invites you to make up your own story. And you're dancing in the fandango, and you start like saying like how cute that girl is who's dancing, and how you'd like to talk to her after the fandango, or, or whatever, you know, like how smoggy L.A. air is. basically play music that's inspired by song jarocho music, but we'll throw in like ska or hip hop or a little bit of cumbia. I grew up going to spoken word slams and like emceeing and freestyling all the time. So we break stuff down in hip hop and, and and we'll break down, you know, colonialism or like Mexican history and how one of the, the major generals in the uh, Mexican Revolution was Afro Mexican. The Underground Railroad also ran south let black folks to freedom with mexico right there to receive them man in la there's tension often between black and brown people african-american communities and, and latino communities and so we use Son Jarocho as a way to uplift the narrative that we share as people of color stories of struggle stories of freedom stories of joy through struggle Tango is a participatory space, man. It's this sort of democracy or environment where everyone can be. Within, within a structure, they can kind of do their thing. And I think that those are the kinds of spaces we want to create where people can just be. And so for us, man, it's Songharocho is a way to uplift people, invite them to tell their stories and look at each other and see like, man, we share this world and we want to invite people to say, how can we make it better together?
0: Las Cafeteras with their take on Chuchumbe a Son Harocho standard well one question that their story brings up is why Son Harocho there are dozens of folkloric music styles in Mexico why has this one become this potent symbol of Chicano identity ethnomusicologist Alejandro Madrid says it all comes down to the essence of the fandango
1: the Fandango is the community celebration, and this is what makes Son Jarocho very different from other more commercial types of Latino music.
0: So in the US, where a lot of value is placed on individualism, Son Jarocho is a form of a rebellion.
1: It's basically going against the mainstream culture. They are emphasizing community, they're emphasizing relations with family, with friends... Uh, as opposed to emphasizing uh, individual success. So in that sense, it is kind of revolutionary. It's very radical in terms that, you know, it goes against a central belief of American culture.
0: We have a lot of afro mexico treats on our website visit afropop.org for detailed accounts of our trip to mexico photos playlists and a short documentary series we filmed and produced in mexico all that at afropop.org Coming up, we hear about Chilena and Cumbia from the Afro-Mexican communities of the Costa Chica. And we check out the lavish downstone ballrooms of Mexico City. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Okay, we're back and heading across to Mexico's Pacific coast. Just south of Acapulco in the state of Guerrero is a stretch of coast known as the Costa Chica. It's the part of the country with the strongest Afro-Mexican presence. Historian Ben Vinson sets the scene for us.
3: This is an area that until the 1960s or so was, as some have described, a region forgotten in time. Uh, This is a a part of the country that didn't get highways until the 1960s. And so, given its isolation and exclusion, this was a part of the country that has developed its Afro-descendant population from the colonial times with, with minimal interruption from outside.
0: The Costa Chica is made up of sleepy, sun-drenched towns like Cruz Grande, where we met Afro-Mexican activist Benigno (laughs) Gallardo. Benigno leads an organization called the National Afro-Mexican Movement. Their goal is to have Afro-Mexicans officially recognized as an ethnic minority. We understand
7: that if the government government recognized us, we would receive the resources to
0: invest in the research and diffusion of our culture. The government provides special economic support to native communities. The way Benigno sees it, the Afro-Mexicans of the Costa Chica are a unique group and should receive the same support as well. There are many things
7: we need to conserve. The Son de Artesa or dances.
0: Son de Artesa, also known as the Chilena, is the traditional music of the coast. Here's an example. La San Marqueña by Los Hermanos Molina.
2: San Marco tiene la fama De las mujeres bonitas San Marco tiene la fama la mujer es bonita también acapulco tiene de diferentes caritas san marqueña de mi vida san marqueña de mi amor me gustó la san marqueña pesada el vestido blanco me gustó la san marqueña pesada el vestido blanco voy a mandarle una carta a ver si la de barranco, San Marqueña de mi vida, San Marqueña de mi amor. Por las calles de San Marcos hay casas y corredores, por las calles de San Marcos hay casas y corredores, ya llevo tu fiel amante, tu preferido de amores, San Marqueña de mi vida, San Marqueña de mi
7: When there wasn't so many sound systems, all the dances here were done with harps and guitars. Not anymore. Little by little, it's dying out.
0: Benigno took us to see his cousin, Lalo Gallardo, who brought out his harp and performed a chilena for us, accompanied by his two teenage sons. Lalo comes from a long line of traditional musicians. His father and grandfather were both important composers. <laughs> La chilena, pues, papá, señores,
7: de la cueca.
0: chilena, according to my father, came from the cueca. La cueca is a folk dance from Chile. According to legend, it was brought here long ago by Chilean sellers headed to California during the gold rush. Afro-Mexicans then took it and adapted it to their tastes. Lalo is now one of the last harpists on the coast.
5: Y así, así And we've tried to nurture this, to conserve it, it. because it's not something that's going to make us rich. We do this because we like it and because it's the tradition of our family.
0: Well, there's no way to make a living playing Chilenas anymore. Lalo does mariachi gigs to get by. Benigno, the activist, hopes that Afro-Mexican recognition will change that by bringing in funds to support artists like Lalo. The problem is that not everybody is on board with the idea. We would go to these meetings and they would tell us there
7: are no black people in Mexico. We would tell them that yes, there were. But the paradox was that we'd come back to the coast and the black
0: people themselves didn't want to be black. Despite the flurry of interest in all things Afro-Mexican, the community itself has been ambivalent about embracing a black identity. Here's local journalist and poet, Eduardo
7: Añorvi.
6: People here use other terms for themselves, such as coast
7: people.
0: There's not much preoccupation with defining oneself. Eduardo says, for example, he only started to think of himself as Afro-Mexican when he left the Costa Chica to go to university, and people saw him differently. I didn't know I
7: was black. Because
0: when you live here, you don't have to know what you are. You just are.
7: are. And it was traumatic for me to find out that I was at first,
6: because blackness is always associated
0: with negative things. Benigno's national Afro-Mexican movement has been working to change that. In 2012, they sent out a survey and found 100,000 people in Guerrero State that chose to identify themselves as Afro-Mexican more than ever before.
7: To some extent, people have to self-identify.
0: This is Anita Gonzalez, author of a book about Costa Chica dance and performance called Afro-Mexico, Dancing Between Myth and Reality.
7: The whole idea of being Afro-Mexican is a new idea to Mexico. So there's a political battle to have people named Afro-Mexican so that resources can then be directed to very poor communities who have been discriminated against because of their skin color. It's like naming the beast is the first step, and then funding the beast is the second step. And then all of that is different from how people see themselves and their personal identity. And you have all of those factors arguing over one another in Mexico.
0: Yep, it's pretty complicated. But Eduardo Añorve, the poet we just heard from, says that to understand the soul of the Costa Chica, you have to leave the politics aside and take a close look at the music there you'll find songs about the difficult life of a fisherman or the beauty of a dark skinned woman. <laughs> Eduardo says you have to look beyond the chilena, to the music people actually still listen to on the coast. Cumbia. The Costa Chica has developed its own unique style of cumbia, defined by fast tempos and reverby guitar licks. El
2: tiempo de agua se acerca Los campos van
0: a dar flores the songs, Eduardo says, contain hints to deeply held cultural values. Take, for example, this song, Vida del Campesino, or Life of a Peasant, by Bertín Gómez. Con recuerdos y
2: esperanza La plata que coseché
6: He says if the waters come, I'll work the earth and make money.
7: Then with this money that I'll earn, I'll spend it all
6: enjoying myself. I'll go out partying. And there's a philosophy there, but We're sometimes not taught to see it. I had to go through a whole process before I saw the beauty in it.
0: Sometimes the Costa Chica's Afro-Mexican heritage isn't expressed just in the lyrics, but in the rhythms. There's another style of dance music here that sounds like nothing else in Mexico. It's called merequetengue. Here's a taste by Orquesta La Barredora. Julia, America by Orquesta La barredora. You're listening to La Bamba, the Afro Mexican story on Afropop Worldwide. And remember to visit our website, afropop.org, where there's much more info about our trip to Mexico's Costa Chica, including a short documentary piece we filmed there. Okay. The African presence in Mexican music isn't just about Afro-Mexicans. Mexico has long been a hub for Afro-Cuban music, from son to mambo and salsa. And for the final chapter of today's episode, we leave the coast and head to the dance halls of Mexico City, where a vintage Cuban music style is still all the rage. Producer Marlon Bishop picks up the story. Okay.
4: I'm at a dance class at a cultural center in Mexico City. Four couples are trying to pull off a new move. This is danzón, and according to teacher Beatriz Almanza, it takes a lot of work to do it right.
2: Danzón
6: is a complex dance that requires discipline, it requires careful listening to the music, it requires learning the steps. The
4: class is taught by Beatriz and her husband, Fernando. The two met as students at a danzón class themselves, many moons ago. 15 years later, in 2010, they became the national danzón champions. For Beatriz, it's much more than an ordinary dance.
2: It
6: brings me a sensation of freedom, of pleasure. It invites you to enjoy life.
4: Wow, I'll have what she's having. By now you might be wondering, what the heck is Danzón anyway?
1: The Danzón is a dance form that came from the black neighborhoods of Matanzas, Cuba.
4: This is ethnomusicologist Alejandro Madrid, who we heard from earlier in the show. He has a book coming out about Danzón later this year.
1: It was developed by black musicians who played um, a type of music that that was coming out of the the habanera and the counter dance.
4: So we're talking Cuban music from before the days of the Mambo, or the Cha Cha Cha. It has this kind of grand stateliness to it, like European formal dance music with a little Afro-Cuban twist. That was Papa Montero by the Orchestra of Antonio Maria Romeo. Now, take a look at a map. Cuba is so close to Mexico, they're practically touching.
1: Cuba was sort of in the middle of the way between Spain and Mexico. So everything passed through Cuba, going to Spain or going to Mexico. By the early 20th century, Mexico City is full of Cubans. There's many, many, many Cubans. Musicians and also um, actors and actresses, the entertainment industry in Mexico was very strong and during the 20th century was probably the strongest in Latin America. You know, people who were making movies or playing music, they went to Mexico because this was where their careers would be launched. Everything Cuban was perennially in style. When Danzón came, Mexicans
4: thought it was the coolest thing since Café con Leche. It took off here, but it took off in kind of its own direction.
1: What happened in Mexico is that it it developed into a very unique Mexican tradition in terms of the type of ensemble that was playing the music and uh, how they were playing the music. And it was so pervasive that actually some people began to think that it was actually a Mexican genre of music.
4: Where the Cuban sound was more delicate with flutes and violins, Mexican danzón was all about big brassy orchestras and booming kettle drums. Take it from Mexican danzón composer and bandleader Alejandro El
7: Chamaco Aguilar. El danzón mexicano
0: es más rumboso, más
7: alegre.
5: The Mexican danzón has more rumba, it's more of a beat. It really lets the danzón blossom.
4: One of the most famous bandleaders of the early period back in the 20s was the timbal player Consejo Valiente nicknamed Aserina, Aserina was actually born in Cuba, but lived most of his life in Mexico and is thought of today as a Mexican danzón artist. This is his classic, Nereídas. Serena y su danza nera with Nereidas. As it happened, danzón was getting popular in Mexico, the same time another cultural industry in Mexico was booming the film industry.
1: I would say that in the 1930s and 1940s, practically every single film will have at some point one danzón played in it.
8: La primera parte the
1: first sound film in Mexico, uh, Santa, actually has a very uh, interesting scene in which the main character is teaching someone else how to dance the danzón. Santa, quiero que me enseñes a bailar danzón.
4: At the height of the danzón craze in the 40s and 50s, there were dozens of salones, or dance halls, in Mexico City. In the 60s, they started to disappear. But not entirely. Since
8: 1937,
4: Salon Los Angeles has stood on a quiet block near downtown. Tuesday nights, they still host danzón orchestras. Walking into the Los Angeles feels like walking straight into a classic Mexican movie. The hall is massive and harshly lit, its walls covered with old photos. On the dance floor, about a hundred mostly older couples carefully measure their steps as Danzón blares from the bandstand. Arturo Castaneda is 65, and has been coming here for
7: 40 years. Many of the dance halls have closed by now. The Salon Los Angeles is the only traditional one that's still around.
4: Arturo met his wife, Gloria, dancing here. She says Danzón has helped keep their fires burning over the years.
6: Danzón, for me, is a really sexy dance because you dance really close to your partner. You have him right here in front of you. If you love the person, it feels really nice.
4: The dancers are dressed to the nines in glittery dresses and zoot suits. If you ask any of them, they'll tell you. Danzón is as Mexican as mariachi. Case in point, Cesar
2: Gallardo.
5: We dance better than the Cubans, even though it's from Cuba, we dance dance better here. According to
4: Alejandro
1: Madrid, however, this idea is a relatively recent invention. So in a sense, the, the Mexicanization of, this, of these Cuban sounds has to do with a nostalgic look at the past. And uh, many of these people look at those movies and they identify this sense of nationality with this music that back then was considered Cuban and was considered foreign and was considered black. But now, when people look back at the 1950s, they don't look at this music as being foreign. They hear this music as being Mexican music.
4: They might have a point. Lanzón has plenty of fans in Cuba, but in Mexico it's gone through a real renaissance in recent years with dance academies opening all over the country and over a dozen danzón orchestras working in Mexico City alone. And even though it's likely that few of the dancers at the Salón Los Angeles feel a connection to Mexico's African heritage, the so-called third route, maybe this identification with the Afro-Cuban danzón is a subconscious way of reclaiming that history. Or maybe not. Maybe we should just take the advice of dancer César Gallardo.
6: All
5: kinds of music are nice, but you really feel the danzón. It gets in you. You can't explain the feeling of dancing it. You just have to try it.
4: Why bother trying to understand the Mexican relationship to danzón with words when you could just do it with your feet?
0: Orchestra of Chamaco Aguilar with El Violin Encantado. Well, that's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed our Afro-Mexican road trip. For more info, photos, playlists, and travel journals, visit our website, afropop.org. There's a lot of cool Afro-Mexican material up there, including a short documentary series we filmed in Mexico. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfroPop.ww, Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the US. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Thanks to Anita Gonzalez, Alejandro Madrid, Ben Vincent, Eduardo Agnove, Benigno Gallardo, Ricardo Perry, Miguel Zamudio, Jose Luis and Nikki Nakasawa for their help with this program. Additional thanks to Valerie Maczak, Ali Silver, Alexandra Hall, Greta Johnson, and Katie Ricciardi. My Afropa partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Marlon Bishop. Assistant production by Nina McIntosh and Jocelyn Bonadio. Voiceovers for today's program by Jorge Chefi, Luis Del Valle. Andres Caballero and Nadia Rayman. Our chief audio engineer and co producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan, Michael Johnson, and Franz Mernick. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richmond, and I'm Georges Collinet. <laughs>